Does everyone turn there? Colossians 2, verses 8 through 15. Um, I want to ask you, does anyone in here ever feel like your Christian walk... Now, I'm speaking to you if you were a Christian. This is a question mainly for Christians, and then I will add something to it for, for those of you who feel like you are not a Christian. But if you are, do you ever feel like your life is spent either climbing, ascending, or descending a ladder where at the very top, look at this, does this make y'all nervous? It makes me a little nervous. <laughs> a fail blog moment just waiting to happen right now. If the top rung was God's pure acceptance, if this top level was His love, His acceptance for you, then every time you sin, every time you go through a season of sin, you step down rungs. And your whole Christian life is spent climbing and descending this ladder of God's grace and His approval and His love for you. The reason I ask that question and I want you to meditate and think about that is because for a long time, years and years, this is how I would do it. I would do a lot of works. I would do things to impress God. I would perform and behave just because I wanted to always be up here with Him. I always wanted Him to love and approve me. I wanted him to always call me son. I never wanted to not be a son. But every time I would sin, every time I would not do what I, I should do or whatever it would be, I'd always feel like this is what's happening. And then I've got to start all over. Square one. Climb the ladder again. So Christian life is spent climbing and descending, ascending, descending, ascending. And it just depended what day it was as to what rung I was on on the ladder. I want to talk about that a little bit today because Paul talks about it a little bit to the Colossians right here. If this is your first time or you've not been very often, we're working all the way through the book of Colossians from the very first verse to the very last. And today, we're in the second chapter. Believe it or not, next week we're finishing the second chapter. We're flying through the second chapter. Um, But this is a chunk of scripture that I'm breaking up into two weeks because it's just too big to deal with in one setting. But he's talking about something that we need to hear. He's talking about legalism, works, um, a performance mentality before God, uh, behaviorism, however you want to put it out there. This is what Paul is wanting to talk to about these people in Colossians. And man, if Colossi needs to hear it, we need to hear it. Okay, This is what it says in Colossians 2, verse 8. See to it, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. And in him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive, together with him, having forgiven us, of all of our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's a lot. That's a mouthful. Okay? 
If you were to crunch all of that into one sentence, and I tried this over and over again. I'm about to read you my 18th draft. 18 times I tried to summarize all of that 170-something words into one sentence the best I could. And the best I could come up with is this, that God spiritually raises us from the dead and makes us complete. So if you add anything else to your completeness, it's stupid. (laughs) That's the best I could come up with. It's stupid to do that. Paul's ticked off in this. Paul is starting to get more and more ticked off as he's reading through this to the Colossians, you know. One thing I want you to remember is he's talking to a church where there's an aggressive heresy coming in to do destruction. Last week, Kevin spoke about philosophy and wisdom and how these guys were coming in that were philosophers, they're just wisdom experts, I guess, whatever you want to say. They're basically hippies, right? Hippies are just preaching this mystical goo that kind of started seeping in and changing people's minds, and that was ticking Paul off. This week, he kind of changes gears. He's not talking to the hippies as much anymore, right? He's talking to more of the hardliners, more of the stalwarts, the heavy Jews, the ones that were keeping all of the laws. He's kind of switching gears. But this is aggressive heresy. He uses the word, see to it that no one takes you captive. I mean, that word it means kidnapping, if you look into it. To be smuggled out. To be kidnapped. It, this is something that's aggressive. It's not, it's not a deal where you've got these heretics coming in, and they're just, they don't mean bad, they just have bad theology, just junk doctrine. And they're just, you know, accidentally hurting people. That's not what's going on. These are convincing, compelling people who are doing the best they can to pull people off of a foundation that Paul had already come to build. Something that was other than Jesus Christ. And it was hurting the church. It was a young, vibrant, healthy church in some regards. But this was starting to rot it from the inside out. And Paul's upset at this point. Paul does say this, don't turn there. Well, yeah, no, you could turn there. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 11. We will have it up on the screen too, I think. This is Paul. He's talking to a different church, planted this church, but he was having some foundational things he needed to talk about there too. And he says this, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, and this is what the foundation is, which is Jesus Christ. He lays a foundation of Jesus Christ alone, Jesus Christ supreme, Jesus Christ with no additives, with no works mixed in, with no legalism all dripping all over it, with no mystical goo, with no Sabbath days added to it, with no works, with no food laws added to it. It was just pure Jesus Christ was the foundation that he built. These heretics were coming and they were trying to shift things out. That's why you see at the end of this big passage that we just did, that's why you see such a beautiful pronouncement of the gospel. He says things like, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all of our trespasses. He starts off taking these swings and these jabs at religion. Then he preaches the gospel. And then as you'll see next week, he goes back to taking more jabs at it. You know, Why does he put this beautiful gospel right in the middle of talking to them about the law? It's because the Colossian church had a hard time spotting a fake. You have to know what the original thing looks like before you can spot what the fake is, right? 
in order for them to see what a false gospel was, an imitation gospel, they need to continually be reminded of what the true, pure, unpolluted, unadulterated gospel looked like, sounded like, and smelled like. They were having a hard time with that. So we, we need to do the same thing. You know, I, I remember the first time, I was thinking about this this morning on the way up here, the very first time I ever saw fake tan, tan in a can. Y'all remember the first time y'all ever saw that tan in a can? I was in high school. I remember it was, uh, it was when I ran track and I was at practice afterward with a guy. I didn't even look at him. He just started running with us. He came a little late. We're already running. He just starts running with us, a pack of four or five of us just warming up. And I saw his hands. And they weren't reddish orange. They were orangish red. You know what I'm saying? They had this tint to them that was so unnatural. And they were on both of his hands. And... I said, bro, what happened to your hands? And I looked up at him expecting a response, and his face was the same color. He had this orangish-red face, because I guess you're supposed to like rinse that stuff off, and he's a dude, he doesn't pay attention. So he just rubs it on his hands, rubs it on his face, and goes on with his business. Well, it turned his skin reddish-orange, or whatever. It's just horrible. Now, the reason I knew, of course, we laughed at him, because we're real guys, you know, and that's what you do, you mock your friends when something unfortunate happens to them like that. So... The reason I knew that was a fake tan is the same reason all of y'all would know that that was a fake tan. It's because we've seen the real tan before. We know what a real tan looks like, right? Thinking about that same age, you know, I lived in West Texas at the time, and so people would go to Mexico all the time. We weren't that far from the Mexican border. So anytime a friend went to Mexico, you'd always slip them some money. If you were a girl, you wanted them to get you vanilla. Because they make a really good vanilla extract just south of the border. So to bring back bottles of vanilla was a really cool thing. If you're a guy, you don't really care about vanilla. And you didn't even know that there was such a thing, an extract of vanilla. But if you're a guy, you'd slip your buddy 20 bucks so he'd bring you fake Oakleys. Because you can get some Oakley sunglasses with the O on the side. We called them fakelies. You can get some fakelies with the O on the side. They looked like the real deal. They felt like the real deal. But after a while... Plastic starts to get kind of worn. The O starts to rub away a little bit. Crack. Because they're fakelies. So you can spot a pair of fakelies from a mile away. Because you know what real Oakleys look like. If you ever go to Asia, you're going to buy yourself some Nikes real cheap. Make sure the swish is going the right way. Right? But you would spot that because you know what the real thing looks like. It's hard for us to know what a false gospel looks like unless we have a good foundational understanding of what the true gospel looks and sounds like and feels like. The Colossian church was having a hard time with this. That's why Paul does that. That's why he lays it out so thick. And we're going to revisit towards the end of this. There's some great stuff in this passage. Realistically, you could take two months on this. I'm not going to, but you could. He makes some great reversals. He talks about how we were once spiritually dead... And now you're spiritually alive. Talks about how you once were spiritually uncircumcised, but the reversal is, is now you're spiritually circumcised. Talks about how spiritually you were in debt, but now spiritually you have a wealth to you. Huge reversals made. And then in verse 14 he does something that I love. Talks about this list of debts. This list of offenses that stare us in the face, that indict us of our sin. As he call it? He says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. A record of debt. Imagine that. And what does he do with this record of debt? He takes it and he nails it to the cross. 
That's, that's metaphorical. That's, he's speaking in symbolism. He nailed his son to the cross. Our debt was punished and satisfied right there on the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, right? You know, I read this two years ago, and if this was true two years ago, it's true today. But I couldn't find it, so I can't reference it for you. But allegedly, two years ago began the moment where it was technologically possible to put an implant in a baby and record digitally every word they ever said from the moment they were born to the moment they died. Imagine that. Think about that. Every word you've ever said, ever, from the moment you were born to the moment you died, being recorded. Could you imagine being one of those babies? And on your deathbed, these crack team of analysts come in, these flowcharts and graphs. They said, well, Mr. Williams, we've looked at your language, and we can see that 18% of the things you said were pretty cruddy things to say, you know. And another 13% of what you said we see here are total lies, you know. I mean, could you, if they could break it down digitally and, and do that. Imagine if that could be done for your thoughts. Oh, well, now that just, that just anteed it up a little bit. Even your thoughts, if they could be measured. Your actions. The truth is that list does exist. God understands every rock we throw at Him, every impure thought you've ever had, everything you've ever said, everything that you, even the good things you've done with bad motives, they're on that list too. And He took this list, this record of debt, this indicting list, and He nails it to the cross in His Son on the cross. That's, that's here. That's verified in this passage. That's a beautiful part of this. But the one I want to cue in today, the one I want to look at, is that we are already complete in Christ as a Christian. To attach or fixate our lives on anything smaller than Jesus, anything smaller than the gospel is just stupid. And people are going to be selling it to you. Listen, heresy didn't stop in Colossae. <laughs> it's still out there. It's still out there. And, and, and they're still smooth talkers. And they can still lay it down thick and sell it. Heresy is still out there. You will always, your whole life, be tempted to buy into things smaller than Christ. You will always, your whole life, be tempted to buy into things smaller than the gospel, to attach and fix your life on, right? You'll always, as a Christian, let me just make it clear, as a Christian, you were always totally accepted. Why? Because it's not your performance that dictates. It's what Christ did in His performance because you couldn't perform. That's the gospel. The reason you're always, as a Christian, on the top rung is because God doesn't see you any other way. You're buried in Christ. Well, Luke, but my performance stinks. I've been sinning the same sin for six months. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. This is why it doesn't matter. Because it has nothing to do with your performance. Right? But you will always be tempted your whole life to buy into something that does this to you. Buy something that puts you back down here when you've given up the top rung. That's realistically what's happening. I'll tell you, Paul talks about something in this passage. He mentions it four times, three times in one sentence. And I've told you before, anytime you see a repeated word or phrase in a passage, it's significant. And you need to look at it a little bit more intensely. This week, what it is, is it's circumcision, which I know is why you all showed up, because you wanted to hear about circumcision. So, it does have a distinct meaning to them. And it needs to have, we, have, we need to understand what Paul meant when he talked to them about circumcision. We need to know what it means for them, for us to have any idea of what it means for us. Right? I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but in case you didn't know, circumcision 
is the removal of foreskin on a young boy eight days of age back when this was written. Eight days. Why eight, not six? Because eight was the first day of a new week and it symbolized new beginnings. So what they do is the Israelites would take a baby that is eight days old, a boy, and they would circumcise him. Right? Or... If you were a man, a grown man, coming in to live with the Israelites, they would circumcise you too if you weren't already circumcised. So that would be a Gentile, someone who's not a Jew. Anytime you read in the Bible the word Gentile, that just means non-Jew. Okay? So let's say this is how that would happen most often. A Gentile would get into a bad debt situation, owe a lot of debt, or commit a crime. In order to pay it off, they would go and work. It'd be indentured servitude, right? We have it today, too. I mean, we just have it in different forms. But they would go do that, and they would live among the Jews. But in order to come in and do that, you've got to be circumcised. Not a good day if you're a grown man. You know what I'm saying? So they would circumcise. To be a man and live inside of the Jewish camp, you had to be circumcised. That's what this is. Now... It was a physical matter. didn't have to be a heart issue. You didn't even have to believe in God. You didn't have to be devoted to God. It was just a physical symbol of you entering a nation of God's people. That's all it was. You think an eight-day-old baby had any devotion towards God? No, he didn't. What about a slave coming in to work off a debt? No, probably not. You might have had a situation where that happened. A Gentile came in and they really had a heart change. And that's one thing. I guarantee you that's a small, 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 small percentage. Largely, this was a physical matter. Okay? It's important. If you, if you want to know where all this is at in the Bible, we're not going to look at it today because it's just way too much. Exodus 17 is kind of the fountainhead of where all of this comes from. Right? So, it's a physical surgery symbolizing entrance into a kingdom of God's people. That's what you need to know. That's all you need to know. If you know that, you know more than 99% of the, the world right there. Congratulations. Now the problem was is that many of the hardline Jews of the day, of Paul's day, many of the hardline Jews that believed in Jesus, Judaistic Christians, Jew, Jewish Christians, that were circumcised, even though they knew that that was a physical thing, they wanted to keep doing that. They wanted to keep putting that on people in order to be accepted by God. In order to be a top-tier Christian, according to these Jews, these hardline Jews, you had to be circumcised, even if you were a Gentile. They're adding a work to it. They're adding a sense of performance to it. That's what's going on. And this wasn't something that God wanted. It ticked him off. Religion, legalism, ticks God off. Adding works to this relationship ticks him off. It ticked Paul off too. And legalism, let me just say, it's just this. It's putting rules before relationship. It's putting the rules of what you do for God before the fact that God did for you. It's putting rules before relationship. It's divorcing gospel from behavior. Where you're behaving in order to get up here instead of behaving because you're already there. There's a big difference between behaving for God, performing for God, following rules and rates. There's a big difference between doing that in order to get up to where God accepts you and doing it out of a love because God has already accepted you. That's the difference between legalism and a grace-centered, gospel-centered life. It's very important. Such a subtle shift though, isn't it? Such a subtle, tiny shift. And yet it's the difference between being free and being a slave. It's very, very important. Now today... We're not really concerned about circumcision anymore, are we? We don't really talk about that very much. We don't walk around and, hey, brother, you circumcised? I wasn't sure. I just wanted to ask, you know. 
while we're at. We don't talk about that anymore. But we got other things. You just put your own list in there. Don't we? Have you been baptized? Hey, seriously, can we not put that on there? What kind of church you go to? Hey, what kind of Bible do you use? Right? What about your attendance? Don't we put that up there? What about accountability partners? Hey, do you have an accountability partner? You know, if you really want God to love you, you have an accountability partner. You know? What about speaking in tongues? Any of you come from that crowd? Where in order to be a Christian, you must speak in tongues. It's a, hey, the church today, we, we still do it. People today, they still do it. It's not circumcision, it's something else. We'll put on that. We have to deal with it. Legalism is virtually where we make ourselves right before God. Forgetting that Jesus is the one that makes you right before God, not ourselves. That's what legalism is. It's our self-atonement, our own little salvation project, right? Where we are made ourselves acceptable, but by our own doing, not by His doing. So what does Paul do? He takes this thing called circumcision. He makes it a teaching point. He digests it and teaches it right back to these same Jews. But he's teaching them where it really came from. This is beautiful. I love how he does this. He talks to them about how what they've always known as circumcision is really just a shadow. It's really just a shadow of something that is true and better. You know, we have shadows because of the, the crazy light situation here. Everything has like six shadows, right? But the deal is, is this shadow up here, it's just a, a vacuum of light. It's an absence of light. The real thing that's casting the shadow is that light. So that is the true and better version of this. Easy enough. Circumcision, as the Jews always knew it, it's just a shadow. The true thing is a spiritual reality later on. You see, physical circumcision is a sign of national belonging. Spiritual circumcision is a sign of new national belonging, right? The old shadow is mankind having his own flesh torn in order to be acceptable before God. The new, the true and better version is Jesus Christ having his flesh torn so that you can be acceptable before God. Do you see how this works? Originally, the surgery was given by physical hands. The Bible says that the new surgery, the spiritual one, is given by spiritual hands. See how it works? The old circumcision had no regard for where your heart was at. The new circumcision, it is totally required that your whole heart be called and responsive to what God is doing. You see, these Jews that Paul was speaking to, they didn't look at it only as a spiritual event. They saw it as something that needed to continue to happen. And what they were doing is they were taking this perfect life, this perfect death, and they were saying it needed a little bit extra. It needed turbo. It's not good enough. God's story isn't good enough to connect you to God completely. The gospel's not that good. You have to add some salt to it. You have to add a little bit of obedience, a little bit of what you can do. And that's why they had circumcision. I'll tell you, that must have scared the crap out of these these poor Gentile believers coming in. With these Jews, I mean, you understand, these Gentiles, they're they're the new kids on the block. They don't really understand all of the stuff that, that, that the Jews would understand. Remember, a lot of these Jews, the Pharisees, they had the first five books of the Bible memorized. Could you imagine, could you imagine as a young believer walking into that and having these Pharisees go, Hey, we're real excited about you being a Christian. I mean, welcome to the club, right? It's good to have you here, but if you want to be a top-rung Christian, if you want to be up here with us, you need to be circumcised. 
Now that would be scary. I mean, some of you, you didn't even like hearing that you needed to be baptized when you became Christians. You're like, uh, is that like in front of people? You know what I'm saying? I mean, just baptism was scary. Could you imagine circumcision? That had to have been scary, you know? In order to be up here, you need to be circumcised. I mean, you could, you know, always be right back down here, but circumcision is really what God wants. That's always how God has wanted it. And these are guys that knew the law, and they knew how to speak, and they knew how to teach it. And that's what was happening. Can you see how dangerous that is? Paul freaked out on that. He freaked out on that. There's a lot of potential for damage in this young church. This is what he says to another church dealing with the same thing. This is in Galatians 5, verses 2 through 3. He's talking to a different church. This church had a real bad problem with law. It says this, Look, I, Paul, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. This is what he's saying. This is what he's saying in that. Hey, if you do this circumcision thing, good luck. If you rely on law instead of Jesus, that's fine. But that means you have to be perfect with all the laws too. You see, there's, there's actually two ways to get to Jesus, not one. One is you have to be totally perfect. In every way, shape, and form, with thought, since you were born until you die, utterly perfect, have committed no sin. But since some of you were born out of a womb that wasn't the Virgin Mary, you were already born with sin. So that X is out that hope that you can't do that anymore. That means now the only way to get to Jesus Christ is through Jesus Christ. The only way that you will ever experience eternal life is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? Paul is saying, hey, if you want it one way, if you want it to be law, Jesus is of no advantage to you. You've chosen the wrong route. That's how, that's how important this is. So he's speaking to them. And he's saying, hey, don't downgrade what you have. You already have Christ. You're already on the top rung. Don't buy into circumcision. Then you're just stepping down. You're just buying something smaller than Jesus. It's just a work. You're putting yourself back on the ladder of climbing and descending and climbing and descending. And it doesn't matter. This is what Warren Wearsby says. He's, he's a great theologian. He says this, Sad to say, there are many Christians who actually believe that some person, religious system, or discipline can add something to their spiritual experience. But they already have everything they'll ever need in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I agree with Warren. I agree with him. I think he's right. So when do we do this? When do we add to already being complete, our completeness. I don't think that's a word, by the way. But when do we add to our completeness? When do we say the gospel is just too small? When do we say that we need rules and regulations to help out, to make it all work? I think there's two ways. This is the heavy application part, okay? Um, I think we, we do it most whenever things are going crappy, and we do it the most whenever things are going really well. Those are the two times, if you want to see yourself as a legalist, as a rule promoter, those are going to be the two times that you see it. When things are going real crappy and your performance is nose diving, and when things are going really well and it seems like your performance is peaking, right? And I want to talk about that. When things are going really crappy and your performance is really suffering, right? It's a low batting average season for you. Whenever that's you. Condemnation is usually the feeling that you get in your gut. Saying that you are not good enough to be before God because you've sinned. 
saying that you're not clean enough to be before God because you've sinned or you've been sinning. And so it's like this ladder, you know. It's always up or down depending on the level of sin that you're in. And condemnation is usually when you're down here or on the floor, but not when you're up here. And usually we're all somewhere in between, right? That's the way we feel. We always feel like we're not really top, we're not really bottom, but we're somewhere in between, you know? And it's always usually kind of a, I don't know, almost a gamble for us sometimes. Even when we do feel like we're doing really well, there'll be some sins that we know we're supposed to stay away from. But some, if they're small enough, we think, ah, that's only going to take us down like a half a step, so I can go ahead and afford that, because it won't take much more to get up here. And the truth is, is you are always up here. <laughs> and so condemnation is that sinking feeling in your gut that you are not good enough. Now, there's a difference between condemnation and conviction. Conviction is saying that sin stinks. That sin in your life, it stinks. Condemnation is you stink. You stink. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you are a Christian, condemnation is never anything that you ever have to experience. It's something that you will be tempted to experience. You never have to experience that. Conviction, however, is a very godly thing. That's how God shows us that we're doing things that hurt the gospel, hurt ourselves. Okay? So... What do we do when we feel condemned? We add things. This is, we actually do two things, and, and some of us do both. I, I happen to do one, not both, but I'm really good at the one. The one I'm really good at is I like to add things into the mix to show God that I'm real serious and I'm never going to do it again. That's what I like to do. I call it doubling down. I like to double down. In, in poker, doubling down is when you get into a little bit of trouble. <laughs> but you're going to fake everyone else out so they think you're not in trouble. So you just push a bunch of chips in. And that's and for me, a lot of times, I, this is my mentality. Oh, yeah? Okay, well, I'll show up twice as much to church. How about that? You know what? I'm going to start fasting right now just to show God. I'm going to fast for three days. And I'm going to read the Bible two hours every day. And I'm going to pray for four hours on the third day. And I start setting up all these rules to do what? What am I doing? I'm trying to climb the ladder. I'm trying to climb the ladder, and I think that the only way to get up here is to just do a bunch of things. And since what I already did wasn't working, I'm going to double it, triple it, and I'm going to quadruple it, and I'm going to get two accountability partners this time instead of one, because one wasn't cutting it, you know? <laughs> and so that's what it's like. Now, are any of those things bad? Accountability partners, church attendance, memorize? No, none of it's bad. It's all good. We're to do that. But you understand there's a difference between doing and adding all of those things in order to get up here and doing and adding all these things because you were already up here. One of them is performing in order to get God. One is imaging the fact that you already have God. One is trying to get to where you were a son. One is imaging the fact that you never left being a son as a Christian. That's how important this subtle shift is between legalism and pure gospel-centered Christianity. So, some of us do that. And we think that more work and more might will right the ship. When the fact is, is Jesus Christ already righted the ship, did he not? Jesus Christ did it because we never could do it. That's the gospel. That's what it means. He makes the relationship right. Some of us do that. And that's me. I have a lot of experience in that. Vanishing. Self-loathing. That's something some of us are tempted to do though, right? That's a second category of person. Some of us just vanish. And I mean from gatherings, I mean from anything smelling like community, study, prayer. We feel like we're so unclean, so dirty that we can never show up around other Christians, pastors, friends. 
We won't do study. We won't pray because we'll just feel fake. We'll feel hypocritical. We'll, we'll feel like, God, oh, it's just too close to the point of offense for me to do anything that pretends that I didn't screw up. So what we do is we just vanish. I hear it all the time. As a pastor, I talk to people all the time. I haven't been to church in three years. I haven't been to church in five years. If you really dig around, you really probe, and they really start to trust and talk to you, you're going to find out it's because they either did something or something was done to them to make them feel too dirty to show up around community anymore. That's usually what happens. Self-loathe. We turn inside of ourselves. Because we don't want to be around people or things that remind us of what we've done. Now, is this legalism? Yes. Believe it or not, you're a legalist if you do that. Well, Luke, what am I adding? I'm actually subtracting. You're adding time. Time becomes your savior. It's it's always easy to talk about how you used to be a real knucklehead five years ago. It's real hard to talk about how you were a knucklehead yesterday, isn't it? If I could just put enough time between me and the fence, it's okay. It's all right because everybody has a past, right? But to have it done yesterday and to go right back into community, right back into family, right back into prayer, right back into worship as if it never happened, that's hard for some people to do, isn't it? It's hard. Two different kinds of people. This is what David Garland says. He's a commentator. He says, The selfishness of the worldly grief, which is what we're talking about, gives rise only to despair, bitterness, and paralysis. And it causes our souls to drown in self-pity or turns the sorrow into a cankerous sore. (laughs) No commentary needed right there. That's all of us. Now, some of us do both. Some of us disappear for a little while, and then we double down, right? I'm, I'm a little bit more of a, of a, I don't know what you call it, what kind of person I am, but I go straight to doubling down, you know? But I know a lot of people that I love that they just disappear. They're off the radar. And if, and if they don't show up for a while, you don't hear from them anymore, you know things are going kind of tough for them, you know? So, we can become legalists when our performance gets real crappy, what about when it goes great, though? I mean, instead of condemnation, what do you feel? You feel a, self of, a sense of self-righteousness. Now, self-righteousness is different, right? That's the feeling like we're always on the top rung, not because of Jesus, right? We're on the top rung because of our own works. Hey, I've put together a good few months. I deserve to be up here. Give me a cookie. You know what I'm saying? I've earned it. I've earned every right to be up here. And then, so what does a self-righteous person do? It's easy to do what? Look down. Look down on all of you. Can't follow the rules. Poor you. Maybe you'll get it someday. Maybe someday you'll put together a few months like me, a few years. You know? We get very holy, very pious. And it all becomes about works. All you need to do is change this, add this, and you can be like me. Because I'm self-righteous. Right? And your whole goal in life isn't just to climb the ladder, it's to stay there. And how do you stay there? Is it by Jesus Christ? No, it's not. It's by not doing very many bad things. That's how you stay up here. To you, to the one who struggles in this category, the only reason you're you're an acceptable son or daughter before the king is because you haven't screwed up too bad. But whenever you screw up too bad, oh, down the ladder you go, you know? Down the ladder you go. But you have to act like you're still up here can't let people know. And then you end up down here. But you can't let people know. 
You've got to put on appearances that you're still up here. And then what do you have? A Pharisee. That's what a Pharisee did. What did Jesus say? On the outside you look clean. On the inside you're all jacked up and dying. Dead man's bones. That's what you have. Self-righteousness is a problem. Now, this is what Tim Keller says. I love how he, he approaches this very concept. He says this, To truly become a Christian, we must also repent of the reasons we ever did anything right. Hear that now. Of the reasons we ever did anything right. Pharisees, they only repent of their sins. But Christians, they repent for the very root of their righteousness. We must learn how to repent of the sin under all the other sins and under all of our righteousness. The sin of seeking to be our own Savior, our own Lord. We must admit that we've put our ultimate hope in both our wrongdoing and our rightdoing and we have been seeking to get around God or get control of God in order to get a hold of these things. And that's it. I mean, why are you doing good things? Did you even know that that mattered? Did you even know that that matters? Why do you do good things? Why do you do righteous things? Do you do it because you hope that one day God's going to look down and say, Hey, you know what? I mean, you were a mess, but hey, everybody's a mess. You did do some good things, though. You know, you did a good job of climbing up on that ladder, and you weren't at the top, but you were pretty close to the top. Is that why you're doing it? Or are you doing good things because of the overflow and the wealth of the fact that you've always been up here and God has already put you up here and you cannot be brought down. You cannot be bumped off of this top rung. Colossae, as a city, was having a hard time with this. And so what do we do? We repent. We repent for trying to work our way up the ladder and we repent for trying to stay up on the ladder because it matters why we obey. It matters, right? Now, I'm almost done. I'll be done in like ten minutes, five minutes. I scared you. Five minutes. This is what he says in verse 13 of this passage. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By what? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set it aside, nailing it to a cross. This is what F.F. Bruce says. He says this, If there is an analogy here to be had, it may lie in the fact that Jesus' own accusations were fixed to the cross above his head. Remember that? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, right above his head on a big brown wooden plaque. Just as his own indictment was fastened there, says Paul, so he takes the indictment drawn up against his people, and that too he nails to the cross. There is imagery there. For sure it's not to be missed. You know, the gospel for us is that Jesus made us complete by being complete himself because we could never be complete. That's the gospel. That he took your darkness, he took your sleaze, he took your secrets, he took the things you've never told anyone, he took the crooked things that you thought but you're afraid to even utter out loud, he took all of those things. And if you're a son or a daughter of the king, if you've called out to Jesus as your Christ and your Lord, if you've done that, he's taken all of that list, all of the sleaze, all of the junk, all of the past, all of the things done to you, all of the things you've done, and he's nailed it to the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. Because there's simply nothing we can do to get our tails up a ladder. It's ridiculous. Paul is saying, quit buying things. Quit selling out to little things. We're going to talk about those little things next week. 
I mean, this week we talked about kind of how we can become legalists. Next week I want to talk about why. Why is there even a draw for us to do that? We're all born that way. So some of us today, we need to repent. Some of us, we need to evaluate why we repent. Are you repenting from sin in order to be clean? Or are you repenting in the way that you try to become clean? Are you, are you repenting not just for your sin, but for the way you're trying to climb a ladder? It's important. Why, why do you even repent? You should ask yourself these questions a lot. Why? Why am I repenting? Why am I repenting for this? What is the sin underneath the sin? Some of us, we need to evaluate. We need to be honest with why we disappear for so long. Why we separate ourselves whenever there's sin. It's common. It's a lot more common than we like to admit. It's time becoming a savior to us. That if we just give enough time, then the offense will go away. It won't sting so much. We know that from our own fights with each other. and We fight with our wives, our friends. You call them up the next day, still a little raw. But after a few weeks, you're like, hey man, I've missed you. So we know we've grown up with this inherent idea that time will fix offenses. So what we do is we apply it to God. Maybe enough time will make God love me again. Some of us, we need to ask ourselves why we do good works. Are we performing to stay on the top rung? Or are we performing because we've always been on the top rung? Why are we doing that? All of us need to understand the gospel better. All of us need to do that. Why? Because it will be the only way, the only way, to see a fake come along, to find a shamster trying to sell you something. The only way to do that is to understand the gospel. How do you do? You preach it to yourself all the time. Preach it to your friends all the time. Pray it all the time. Read it all the time. Understand that the gospel is nothing more, nothing less than you were jacked up, broken, could not fix yourself. You needed someone to rescue you. Jesus Christ comes as the God-man, God with flesh on, to rescue you, to remedy this cosmic situation you were in, and to make you right once again. That is the gospel. Well, Luke, what do I do? You accept it. You lean into it. You yield to it. The surgical hands. The surgical spiritual hands of circuit. You just accept it. Call him Lord. Well, Luke, I mean, do we do anything? I mean, where do we... We're supposed to behave. There's rules, right? I mean, to Christianity? There are. There are things we do. I'm not preaching inaction. In fact, I want more action. Especially in my own life. But I am done trying to act for God in order to get up here. I am more ready to act for God because I'm already up here. Because I'm already fixed and cannot be moved. The hounds of hell, every force that the devil could ever unleash against you to pull you off of this step, it cannot happen. You cannot be pulled off of this. That is the beauty of salvation. Not only is it given to you as a gift, it cannot be revoked. It will not be revoked. You are fixed. I'm ready to act from this position, not acting like I'm on the floor, right? It's important. So, I want to perform. I want to do great things. I want to image God. But it's not me pulling something reluctantly out of his closed hand. That's not what I'm doing. I'm already up there. So, some of us need to, some of us need to really look at why getting off this ladder, there is so much freedom waiting for us, right? I'll tell you what, go ahead and stand. And we're going to, I'm going to finish praying and they're going to come up and, and lead us in worship.
um, as the service ends. And you know, some of us we are on the floor, and that's just a fact. Some of us, there is no ladder, there is no top rung, there is no bottom rung, because we're in a place where we just simply don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We simply aren't in a place where any of that makes sense. We, we've maybe thought that it's the way we've grown up has been good enough. We've thought that maybe just our good actions have made it good enough. Or maybe we've been trying to climb up and down the ladder and it's so dang tough and pastors and churches can be so jacked up that you've just thrown up your arms and you thought, who cares? <laughs> I'm just going to do as many good things as I can before I die and just roll my dice and just hope that, hope that God's cool with me. Some of you know you're not anywhere near that ladder. Some of you are just in a furious race getting up and down the thing. Father, I thank you that as we finish this service, God, I know that this subject matter here is of so much importance, and it is so huge, and it is so prevalent that here I am preaching the gospel for 14 years, and I, I am a legalist. I don't want to be. But Father, whenever I sin, I want to save myself. I want to make myself clean. I just do. I want to be acceptable. And Lord, there are people in this room that are just like me. We are all legalists at heart. We were <laughs> That's just the way we came out of, the, out of the womb. We are legalists. Some of us want to escape your presence. Some of us just want to do spiritual push-ups until we can just work our way back into your presence. And some of us are just wicked Pharisees, and I could be like that too, judging people, lording my track record of performance over someone else's track record. Even if I'd never say it out loud, I might subtly think it in my head. That's just putrid to you, Father. Jesus, you never once imaged that as you walked. You embraced... You embraced the whores of a town. You embraced the tax collectors of a town. You embraced the thieves. You embraced the murderers. And you called them to something bigger than themselves. With all their junk and all their track record and all their nasty performance, their grit and their grime, you called them unto you. God, that I would image that better. That I would be more like that. And Father, I know that there are some of us here who have never, ever, ever asked you to place them on the top rung, to make them a son or a daughter of you that have never even tasted Christianity. They've heard of it. They've wondered if they've had it. They thought they might have, thought they might have lost it, thought they might have got it again, whatever. But they never tasted it like it really, really exists. Now, we need you to do surgical, spiritual circumcision on our hearts. Not to cut off skin, but to cut off a life of flesh, a dead body of flesh, a dead body of sin that has dominated us. Before you did that to me, God, I could not be good. It was impossible for me to be good. Even if I tried, I was dominated by sin. I was enslaved to it. But Father, through your spiritual surgery, you cut it off. And finally, I could see who I was, I could see who you were, and I could respond. God, your spiritual work gives us eyes to see, and gives us ears to hear, and it does give us a heart to respond. So Father, I ask for that to happen now, right now. Lord, we love you. 